Good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you this morning. I've been traveling for a couple weeks. It's nice to be back. And a couple weeks ago, I got to preach to you on Pentecost Sunday, and we talked about what happens when the Spirit shows up, and there's some good things that happen, right? But now we've gone back to the prophets. Because we're in this series on preaching through the Bible throughout the course of the year, the story. And Joe has already led us into the prophets this morning. And so today we turn to the book of Hosea. I invite you to turn in your Bibles, the pew rack there, or your electronic devices, and hear the word of the Lord through the prophet Hosea, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Hear the Lord's words, people of Israel, for the Lord has a dispute with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithful love or loyalty and no knowledge of God in the land. Swearing, lying, murder together with stealing and adultery are common. Bloody crime followed by bloody crime. Therefore the earth itself becomes sick and all who live on it grow weak. Together with the wild animals and the birds and the sky and even the fish of the sea are dying. Yet let no one protest and let no one complain. Listen, priest, I am angry with your people. You will stumble by day and at night time, so, you will, so will your prophet, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge since you have rejected knowledge. So I will reject you from serving me as a priest. Since you have forgotten the instruction of your God, so also I will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me. They exchange their glory for shame. They fed on the sin of my people. They set their hearts on evil things. The priest will be just like the people. I will punish them for their ways and judge them for their deeds. They will eat but not be satisfied. They will have sex like prostitutes, for they will not have children. Because they have rejected the Lord to devote themselves to false religious practices. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a little tough, isn't it, there to say thanks be to God. Well, I want to back up just a little bit and talk at first about the role of prophetic literature in our lives and the role of the prophet. And to do that, I turn to one of the great Jewish theologians of all time, Abraham Heschel. Abraham Heschel was a loved theologian by both Jews and by Christians because he cared about all people. He's famous for the moment when he marched with Martin Luther King during the civil rights. Abraham Heschel said, I felt like we were praying with our feet. That is Abraham Heschel. So who are the prophets and what in the world are they up to and what do they have to do with us today? Well, while great philosophers busy themselves with the huge questions of life, meaning and purpose, life, what does it mean to be a human, the prophets at first glance seem to major in the minor. They seem to, to be really concerned with what we might call trivialities. You see, they're worried about orphans and widows. They're worried about single mothers they're worried about unjust judges, and they're worried about the marketplace. What happens in business in the world? Abraham Heschel says that the things that horrified the prophets are even now daily occurrences all over the world. We haven't moved away. 
The prophet's voice is a voice that God has lent them for those in silent agony. Again, Heschel, God rages in the prophet's words. And no issue is more important to the prophets than the plight of humans. Now, it's important to know that prophets don't really tell a story. Prophets more cast events. Prophets kind of say, what's going on? Some of you remember the great Marvin Gaye protest song, What's Going On? Remember that? What's going on? I'm not going to do the falsetto because it, it could be trouble this morning. Marvin Gaye, in that protest song, asked the question, what's going on? Why are so many people dying? Why are so many mothers crying? What's going on in war, he says. The prophets say, we'll tell you. We'll tell you what's going on. The prophets' words burn. Prophets' words are rarely pretty or consoling or nurturing. Rather, they are slashing, horrid, designed to shock rather than edify. The prophets, in some sense, are the moral conscience of the people when they have lost their way. The prophet's ears receive the silent cries of the afflicted. While the world is busy with the immediate, the prophets have a vision for the end. The prophets are always looking out towards what might be. Heschel says that the prophet is neither a singing saint nor a moralizing poet, but an assaulter of the mind. Simply stated, the prophet says, this is what's going on because of what you have done, and this is where it's going to end if you don't turn it around. Are you with me this morning? They're not magicians, friends. Prophets are truth-tellers. Now, the prophets are also collective in their understanding. They remind us of the moral status of a people. Remember, right, that God doesn't call a person. God calls a people. And Yahweh continues to deal with God's people as a people. To quote Abraham Heschel again, few are guilty, but all are responsible. That one you should write down. Few are guilty, but all are responsible. Prophets remind us of our collective and systemic sin as a people. Are you still with me? The truth, though, is that in the Western evangelical Christians, we don't really like this idea, do we? I'm going to suggest to you that we really don't like this idea. Because here in America, particularly, we individualize everything. Have you noticed that? Oh, man, you should have it your way. You know why? Because you deserve it. Well, I'm not responsible for that. What about my individual rights, my liberty, and my freedom? We use words like that. And we've taken these cultural ideas and we have made them Christian. We talk about personal sin and even my personal relationship with Jesus. And we act at times like our personal behavior has no impact on anyone else, nor should it. Now, the good part of that, there's a good part, right? Is that it pulls for personal responsibility. If I do something, I should take responsibility for it. Amen? That's good. The bad part of that individualism is that we, it might cause us to turn a blind eye to the ways in which we unknowingly participate in systemic sin. 
The prophets remind us of this. The prophets don't say, for example, they don't say to Joe, Joe, you know what? You're the reason that there are homeless people and poor people in Pasadena. The prophets would never say that. They would ask this kind of question to the community. What kind of community have you become that there are homeless among you? You hear the difference, friends? Well, I'm not responsible for, I'm not guilty of that. No, but you're responsible, the prophets say. Well, but I didn't, but you are. (laughs) That's a hard one for some of us in the West to grapple with. So, you can see it's not easy to be a prophet, right? (laughs) Can you imagine being a prophet? It's embarrassing, Heschel says, to be a prophet because they're ridiculed, they're made fun of, they're persecuted, they're ignored, they're told they're mad and even killed. And everyone knows if you want to influence people, you really should offer words of encouragement and inspiration and even prosperity if you can. But instead, the prophets bring words of disaster, agony, and destruction. They did not take my speech class in college. None of the prophets really seem enamored with their role. Have you noticed that? Some try to flee. No one signs up to be a prophet. And by the way, beware anyone who does or says, I'm a prophet. Prophet is a distinction and also an affliction. But it's their job to speak, even if people don't listen. It's a surprise that prophets were tolerated by Israel at all. Now, it also occurs to me that some of us don't like when our pastors and our preachers are prophets. (laughs) If you're like me, I'd like my sermons kind of warm and fuzzy. Right? I've had a hard week, Pastor. I come to church for you to make me feel good. Send me back out into that cruel world for another week. But remember two weeks ago or three weeks ago when I preached on what happens when the Spirit comes, we talked about the Spirit comes in two major forms. One, the Spirit does come as the comforter, the healer, right? The lover of my soul. And the Spirit comes as fire. And last time I checked, fire burns. So make no mistake. The prophet's words are the invisible God becoming audible. And here's the central moment today. To quote Abraham Heschel again. The main task of the prophet is to bring the world into divine focus. The main task of the prophetic, of the prophet, is to bring the world, and that includes us, friends, doesn't it? Into divine focus. I got my first set of glasses in third grade. Anybody else? Yeah, right? Many of us have this story in some way or another, right? You you wear glasses, you wear contacts. And you didn't know how out of focus the world was. (laughs) You went from this, hey, what's happening? To, oh my word. Are you supposed to be able to read the board from the third row? Do people read signs that far away from the turn? Some of you had that experience, right? Some of you still have had it. Or some of us older folks, we've had this experience. What is happening? 
hey, honey, can you hold this book over there so I can read it? Right? Anybody had that want to testify? That's the interesting thing about focus, isn't it? It's easy to lose our focus, and our focus changes so imperceptibly and so slowly at times that we don't even notice it. And when we don't focus well, it's easy, isn't it, to begin to drift and focus on other things, things closer to us, things easier for us to decipher, things that make us feel safe and secure. But the role of the prophet is to bring the world into divine focus. And there is good news about the prophet. As Pastor Joe has been telling us, behind these burning words is love and compassion for humankind. Every prediction of disaster is a call for repentance. Come on, that's a good line. The prophet begins with a message of doom and concludes with a message of hope. But we're invited into that. You got that? We're invited into that. So, we're now going to talk about Hosea. (laughs) You with me? Hosea is the uh, the primary prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel who uh, Hosea often refers to as Ephraim. He is the prophet of the decline and fall of the northern kingdom, much like Jeremiah will be to Judah a century and a half later. Now, for many centuries, both Israel and Judah were not disturbed, really, by any great powers, but that changed in the ninth century when Assyria emerges as a major power. And Assyria begins to invade other nations, other parts of the world, and through power and violence, they force these nations, including the northern kingdom, to submit to their rule and pay them tribute. So this is what's happening during Hosea's time. Now, to avoid complete extinction a nation would need to submit. Then the invaders would often go back home and leave the nation kind of to deal with itself, but they were still in charge. And in those moments, there would be infighting. There would be almost like civil war. There would be kings trying to rise and take the vacuum of power and throw off Assyria, which of course they couldn't. And they'd fight and they'd kill each other. And so the northern kingdom is kind of in a state of anarchy until finally... Some peace is achieved with the rise of King Menahem, but he's essentially a puppet of Assyria. So for Hosea, there's no legitimate king in the country, for kings should rise from divine election, not from violence and rebellion. Furthermore, Hosea is concerned because he sees corruption not just at the highest level of government, but he notes it occurring at all levels of social life. We just read that passage that indicated that in chapter 4. Hosea, as the mouthpiece of God, sees Israel's behavior primarily as adultery and promiscuity. Which, of course, gets played out in this really interesting story of his marriage to Gomer. Hosea essentially sees the northern kingdom, or Ephraim, to be in the business of adultery. They have left their former groom, Yahweh, and have shacked up with Assyria. And they were involved not only in adultery, but idolatry. 
Because you see, when Assyria comes in, they demand from their conquest not just tribute, but recognition of their pagan gods. Hosea sees this, and he pulls no punches. Essentially saying, because of your adultery and idolatry, you stand on the edge of the abyss. Now, we can kind of understand that, can't we? I mean, it's easy to make small concessions when under pressure. It's easy to cut a corner here and there to ignore what Yahweh has asked for in order to do business that needs to get done in Assyria. Right? We got to do this. We got to feed our families. We got to make this happen. So certainly... It's not a big deal. We'll just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll acknowledge those foreign gods. We'll, we'll bring Baal into this. We'll, we, could, we could worship both Yahweh and the pagan gods. It's easy to lose focus, isn't it? We know something about this, if we're honest. As Pastor Joe said, we have to think about these ancient prophets and then ask the question, what do they have to do with us today? So I ask us the question, friends, what gods have we given allegiance to? What system or idea or philosophy or ideology has distorted our focus without us even noticing it? It's easy for us to focus on those things, as I mentioned before, that give us a sense of safety, that give us a sense of control, that's immediate, that's right here in front of us. Things that make us feel self-sufficient. But before we know it, we're worshiping at the altar of the pagan gods of wisdom, wealth, and might. Or as one theologian calls it, the three A's. Achievement, appearance, and affluence. Did you know we can worship at those gods? The prophets, including Hosea, would say that those are ludicrous and idolatry. Hosea says this will not stand. In chapter 13, verse 7 and 8, he says, So I will become like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the road. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open the covering of their hearts. I will devour them like a lion as a wild animal would eat them. I will destroy you, Israel, for you didn't realize that I could help you. Whew. That's Yahweh, friends, speaking. Isn't it nice that that was a long time ago? It has nothing to do with us. It could be a little scary, can't it? To have a God that angry. But hear this. Only someone who loves someone so deeply could also convey such deep pain and anger, I believe. Who makes you the most angry in the world? (laughs) It's often the people you love the most, isn't it? A spouse, a kid, a best friend. Remember, the opposite of love is not anger, friends. The opposite of love is apathy. And here's the good news, and it's hard to put good news around this, but God is never apathetic in the face of our sin. 
God is never apathetic in our wrongdoing. He's never apathetic in our separation from him. God loves us so much, he gets angry. That's good news. And there is, therefore, this deep drama in Hosea, as it is in all the prophets. This deep pathos of God towards God's people, this judgment or prediction of both current and future destruction is not the final word. There's a back and forth, even within the book itself, read it, a back and forth that Pastor Joe has noted, there's a divine judgment and a divine grace. There is passionate love for the right and burning hatred for the wrong. It's both and, not either or. And if we're honest today, if we're trying to take these ancient texts, these prophetic texts, and think about them in our lives today, we sit in the same place. This brings us, thankfully, to chapter 14. And I will get there. Verse 1's not on your screen here, but we're going to get to we're going to get to where the screen picks up I think at verse 4. But I want to begin reading 14 at verse 1. Return Israel to the Lord your God. You have stumbled because of your wickedness. Prepare to speak and return to the Lord. Say to the Lord, forgive all wickedness and receive the good instead of bulls. Let us offer what we can say. Assyria won't save us. We won't ride upon horses. We will no longer say, our God, to the work of our hands. Isn't that fascinating? In you, the orphan finds compassion. Verse 4, I will heal their, their faithlessness, says Yahweh. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He will cast out his roots like the forest of Lebanon. His branches will spread out. His beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like that of Lebanon. They will again live beneath my shadow. They will flourish like a garden. They will blossom like the vine. Their fragrance will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, what do idols have to do with me? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit comes from me. Whoever is wise understands these things. Whoever observes carefully knows them. Truly the Lord's ways are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but the evil doers will stumble in them. Two things jump out at me here at the end of the book of Hosea, which I think is actually true of all the prophetic books. First, there's always a call for turning toward the divine focus. There's always a call from the prophets to return to the divine focus. It's a turn toward Yahweh and away from, are you ready for it? Self. Towards Yahweh and away from self. Away from self-sufficiency. Well, you know, I can do this. I can handle this. I got this down. I get my own daily bread, by the way, thank you very much. From self-reliance. I don't really need anyone, even God particularly. I'll just go. I got a hunch. I think this will work out. 
self-interest. Well, what about me? What about my rights? What about my liberty? What about my freedom? Self-preservation. Well, I better get my group together in a holy huddle. Forget those bad people out there. Let's make sure we take care of me and mine and ours. A turn away from self Pride. I got this figured out, Pastor. I've been, a, I've been in the church my whole life. I know what the Bible says. I can quote. A turn toward Yahweh and a turn away from self, self, self. And isn't this the hardest turning of all? Secondly, and I love this part, Yahweh will do the restoring. Oh, come on. You know when I like a phrase, don't you? Yahweh will do the restoring. Here it is, friends. Yahweh wants to do the restoring. You see, again, some of us have grown up with this image of this angry, judgmental, big, mean God up there who's so disappointed with us. And even if we get on our knees and crawl to the altar every Sunday, God might take us back, but he's not going to be very pleased about it. And he's going to make sure that we don't mess up ever again, right? Some of us have an image of God like that. And it's killing you and killing your relationships and killing your discipleship. And it's killing your joy and thriving and flourishing in Jesus. And in your relationship with community and in your relationship with people not yet part of the community. Do you hear me this morning? But here's the thing. You've heard me say it and I'll say it again and I'll fight anybody teeth, tooth and nail about it. There's no place you've been. And there's nothing you have done that can separate you from the love of God. Come on. Hallelujah. And I've said this to you before. There's nothing you can do that can make God love you less. Some of you don't believe that this morning. Some of you do not believe that in your heart. You know it intellectually, but you don't believe it in your heart. So I'll say it again. This is the pastor. One of the pastors talking to you. We're always right. Right, Pastor Joe? Self-pride. <laughs> There's nothing you can do that can make God love you less. Now, don't get it wrong. The, God is angry when we're involved in wrongdoing, but he doesn't stop loving you. The prophets are always calling us back to divine focus. They're calling us up short when we lose our focus, which we all do. They're calling us back to God, the one who is always relentlessly pursuing us. That's the theme of the story of God, right? This, this series that we're doing and preaching, it's about the God who is always relentlessly pursuing us. Right from the let there be light to the book of Revelation. Let me end with this. I know I'm going a little bit long, but I'm going to blame everyone else for that. Abraham Heschel has helped me understand that in this book, Hosea's central complaint, got idolatry, you've got adultery, right? But Hosea's central complaint against the people is this, that the people don't know God. They don't know God anymore. Listen to Hosea chapter 5. Their deeds don't allow them to return to their God because the spirit of prostitution is within them and they don't know the Lord. 
Now, many of you biblical scholars out there, you know that this Hebrew verb, yada, to know, doesn't only mean to know intellectually or to be acquainted with someone. You know, right, that in Semitic languages, it signifies a kind of sexual union as well as a mental and spiritual activity. Heschel says that yada is better translated as an act of involving concern. Inner engagement, dedication, or attachment to someone. If we retranslate the passage I just said to you, it would go something like this. Because the spirit of prostitution is within them, and they are not committed to. They don't have an inner engagement with. They don't feel with the Lord anymore. When Hosea says to know God, he means something like an act of involvement, an attachment, a commitment to God. The antithesis to a spirit of prostitution is an intimate relationship to God. Now again, it's not simple knowledge about God, but an awareness of God. A sensitivity for what concerns him. A concern for the divine person. Not only for the divine will... A relationship with God. A concern that involves both inwardness and outward action. Because the prophets are concerned about that, aren't they? It's the kind of knowledge we find in a marital relationship or often in a deep spiritual friendship. It's modeled by Yahweh's own self, the one who brings them out of Egypt, Hosea 13. I knew you in the wilderness, says Yahweh, in the land of no rain. Hosea's warning to us is that our focus becomes blurred and aimed at the wrong things, idolatry. We lose our our divine focus, which is to know God, to be attached to God, to be in intimate relationship with God, marked by commitment in both inwardness and action. Do you have that today? Do you have that kind of relationship with God? Do you know God in that way, or do you just know about God? You know, some of you know a lot about God. And heaven help us, some of you know a lot about the church. But do you know God as God knows you? You know what we call that? Discipleship. Have you been discipled? Would you like to be discipled? Come see me or Pastor Joe or any of the other pastors. We'll give you books to read and meet with you and put you in groups and Sunday school classes. This is not enough, friends, Sunday morning. You need to get discipled. You don't get to be with the people of God who will begin to help shape and form you to know God in your innermost being in such a way that it drives you out into the world to share it with everyone. Hosea is a call for us to restore our divine focus, to be in relationship to God, to feel for and with God, and to be moved by what God is moved by. And from that deep knowing, as a people, not just individuals, To be moved to action. To destroy our idols, not everyone else's. Let's just start with ours, could we? And as Hosea says, walk in the ways of the Lord. Anybody need a new vision prescription today? Hosea gives us the opportunity. I invite you to stand with me and receive this benediction. And it's good news, isn't it? 
Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than you can ever ask or imagine by the power that is at work within you. To him be praise and glory in Christ Jesus and the church throughout all generations. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Go in grace and peace, friends.